I'm Michael Cross, host of the KOSU Daily Podcast. Every weekday, I bring you the biggest Oklahoma stories of the day with reporting and analysis from our team of journalists and partners. Get the news you need to start your day in less than 10 minutes. Find the KOSU Daily in your podcast feed and subscribe now. This Week in Oklahoma Politics is sponsored by the Oklahoma State Medical Association, cornerstone of Oklahoma medicine with physician members who are committed to better health for all Oklahomans. Learn more at okmed.org. For KOSU, I'm Michael Cross, and it's time for This Week in Oklahoma Politics, along with Republican political consultant Neva Hill and civil rights attorney Ryan Kiesel. Governor Stitt's Transportation Secretary is stepping down after an opinion from Attorney General Getner Drummond. Tim Gatz was also working as director for the Oklahoma Turnpike Authority and the Department of Transportation. Drummond says he can only hold one public office, so Gatz says he will only keep the ODOT gig. Ryan, what are your thoughts on this decision? Well, I think that it's the appropriate decision. Now, going back, the practice that has been in place where a person has held three of these positions at the same time has gone back for nearly 30 years. And so uh, this is an instance of, of where just because you've been doing something for a very long time uh, doesn't make it become lawful just because of the passage of time, much like McGirt. You know, if we think about you know, jurisdictional issues with tribal nations within the state of Oklahoma, uh, you know, we'd gone for nearly 100 years uh, with this assumption around jurisdiction until uh, the Supreme Court decision in McGirt you know, said, just because you've been doing it one way doesn't make it lawful. And that's essentially what happened here. I would encourage our readers, go to the Oklahoma Attorney General website, uh, pull up the opinion. You know, we talk a lot about separation of powers in Oklahoma. You know, the separation of powers that we all learn about in in high school, for the most part, really focuses on the federal government. And uh, we don't spend a lot of time thinking about the separation of powers at the state level. So, you know, here in Oklahoma, you know, states have a broad latitude of how they can set out their government. In Oklahoma, the Oklahoma legislature has an enormous amount of power. Uh, they, they are, as the, as the attorney general says, their acts are presumed to be lawful. Uh, there's a strong presumption that they are. Uh, and so uh, in this instance here, um, you know, the Constitution sets out the power of the executive. And the attorney general said there are 30 exemptions uh, in state law that allow for people to hold multiple of these positions. The executive director and the turnpike secretary, uh, the transportation secretary and the turnpike director those are not among those exemptions. And unless you have one of those exemptions, you, you're not allowed to do this. And so I think that everybody is you know, stepping back. We saw the resignation. We've seen the reappointment. Uh, it'll be interesting to see the governor's conclusion that he doesn't have to be reconfirmed uh, by the Senate. Um, I don't know that that's necessarily the case. But, I mean, this is just about folks having to follow the law. I know that the governor said that this is about politics. Um, this came from an attorney general's request by Senator Mary Bourne out of Norman, whose constituents have a you know, very strong interest in turnpike issues because many of them are, you know, with, uh, in the crosshairs mm-hmm. of, of a new turnpike. So, you know, she wanted to make sure that the laws are going to be followed. Interestingly enough, the attorney general, he said that they, he wasn't making an opinion on the validity of decisions that had been made um, while the, while Gantz had the, the post illegally. Um, but... He did say that the Supreme Court has held multiple times uh, that a an individual acting under the color of law uh, with all of the trappings of office and, and an assumption in good faith that they had that position, that those acts could nevertheless could be valid. Right. So it doesn't necessarily invalidate 
every decision that's been made under his power. Neva? I think that's exactly right. And I think your your point about uh, the fact that this has gone on for more than 30 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you th- when you think back to almost all of uh, the uh, cabinet secretaries have had a dual position, and I think it's four out of the last seven have had all three positions. So this is something that's been ongoing. Now it's the attorney general has weighed in. Some thought it was surprising uh, that it happened at this time. As you alluded to, Ryan, the governor said it was a pointless political attack. I doubt pointless is, uh, doesn't seem to be the case when you read this opinion and you see what uh, the attorney general and his folks have laid out. So um, it, I think it, it, does, it does point to the fact that the legislature has to pay attention to what's going on in these various agencies and what's taking place and make sure they're doing their due diligence uh, in in making sure that the statutes are being followed. In this case, Title 51, <laughs> one that, uh, that they deal with every day during legislative sessions. Um, and I think it's incumbent upon the um, uh, governors now and in the future to be aware of these issues as well. An Eastern Oklahoma lawmaker is standing by his comments calling members of the LGBTQ community filth after the death of 16-year-old non-binary Erwaso high school student Nex Benedict. The doubling down from Westville Republican Senator Tom Woods came after the leader of the Senate President Pro Tem Greg Treat called it reprehensible and inappropriate. Neva, what are your thoughts on Senator Woods' comments? Well, I think uh, I think that the Pro Tem weighed in and said what a lot of people were thinking, and that is that, in fact, uh, the remarks were reprehensible, inappropriate. He went on to talk about the fact that uh, he wanted to make sure that it was understood that these remarks were not reflective of the pro tem, the Senate Republican Caucus, or, frankly, Senate leadership and the Senate overall. So um, I think uh, Senator Tree talked about the fact that he felt it was a serious lapse of judgment. Um, and the more important point I thought he made was that it is a distraction from the, the work that's going on day to day out there at the Capitol. Uh, and it really uh, kind of puts this cloud once again of negativity uh, over everything happening in, in state government all the way down into uh, county and local government when this is the conversation that's taking place and the backdrop of something that now has gained national attention as well. So I think, you know, when you look at this particular uh, state senator, he's in his first term. He was elected in 2022. His area of the state is the northeast, uh, northeastern part of the state, four or five counties uh, uh, right on the uh, Arkansas border. He's someone, even back during his political race, was kind of an in-your-face, go-for-the-attack kind of personality. Uh, in a four-way primary, he, in a forum, uh, basically uh, said that one of his opponents had by specific dates and times, been at a mental mental health facility and said that he was not mentally competent to hold office. And uh, so this is the type of rhetoric that we've already seen coming out of Senator Woods. And I think uh, it does does show that people are going to pay more and more attention to the words that are are stated uh, on any subject. Uh, in the in the Senate or when they're out in their districts, which in this case, a local newspaper uh, was the one that first brought this to the attention by reporting the story that took place at a legislative breakfast. Ryan. 
Well, I think President Pro Temp treats uh, remarks that these were reprehensible by Senator Woods. Uh, I agree with those, but I, I would add that it's an understatement. Uh, reprehensible is an understatement. Uh, you know, we're talking about this in the context of a death of a young child. And, um, you know, regardless of where Oklahomans may stand on uh, issues of LGBT uh, rights uh, and how those might intersect within our school system, you know, what rights parents may have with regard to knowing what's happening with their kids at school. All these are, you know, very, you know, I think valid policy discussions that, that ought to be had. But you can't have those policy discussions if you put one side of, of that policy discussion into the category of filth. I mean, that is uh, just, you know, beyond the pale. Um, you know, frankly, I think it's, it's extraordinarily unbecoming of a state senator. It's beneath uh, the institution of the state Senate. Um, I, Republican senators and Democratic senators alike uh, have found his marks, uh, remarks. I can tell you I was out at the Capitol on Monday. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't hear a single person say a kind word about Senator Woods uh, and the comments that he made. Um, and I think that all elected officials have a responsibility to understand that their words carry a lot of weight. And you know that doesn't mean that you can't you know, say what you believe in or argue for what you believe in. Um, but to categorically call a group of individuals filth, and in particular children, uh, and in particular in the context of a child dying uh, in a public, uh, as a result of an altercation or, or something that happened at a public school, we don't know all the facts yet, but we've got a young child who's dead, and uh, to even think that that word could, uh, could cross your lips at this moment. Um, you know, he says that he's a Christian man. Uh, you know, I'll take him at his word at that. He sure doesn't sound like a Christian in these kinds of context. I'll tell you that um, even a, he said that, you know, Oklahoma is a Christian state. Um, I'll take issue with that. You know, Oklahoma is a state of uh, believers of all stripes and non-believers of all stripes. And, you know, you have to represent all of those individuals. Our state constitution is very clear that this is not a Christian state. This isn't something that uh, that we came up with. This was built upon our founders of the United States Constitution that said, we are not a Christian nation. We're a nation for all believers and non-believers alike. Uh, and it's, you know, as George Washington even pointed out, it's not even a matter of tolerance. You know, tolerance is, is, isn't even what we're at here because tolerance, uh, um, uh, tolerance uh, you know, thinks that, you know, there, that there is something less than that you, have to, uh, that you have to account for. But we're not. We're all equal here. And for him to for him to begin to even think that or that he can impose his beliefs, um, you know, fortunately, I think most Oklahomans do agree uh, that these comments are reprehensible. I, I doubt that he's going to change his course on this, but I hope that in the future that his senators, his fellow senators, Republicans and Democrats, will continue to marginalize him and his effectiveness in the state Senate. And as a result, I hope his constituents recognize, do we want somebody that is going to make international headlines uh, for saying stuff like this, or do we want somebody that's going to go to the Capitol and get things done? You know, it's interesting too. The only other, the only statewide office holder that I saw, Republican Labor Commissioner Leslie Osborne, mm-hmm. she weighed in and and she talked about it from the party standpoint, being a Republican when she became uh, when she ran for office, and she made the comment that uh, that she felt like that there is a faction that's emerged within the Republican Party that is really being characterized by divisiveness, by hate, by, um, by really uh, things that overshadow the basic principles of the party. And many of the, many of the reasons why Republicans uh, uh, 
adhere to adhere to those principles and believe in small government and fiscal discipline and and uh, I think compassionate conservatism were were some of the things that she weighed in on in in her in her news release and I think the fact that she did point out that it is time for Oklahomans when they have an opinion on on these types of events that take place that they should weigh in and make their voices heard whatever their position uh, with their elected representatives so it will be interesting to see if that uh, if that in fact takes place at any level but uh, I think I think the comments certainly were germane to this overall topic that that uh, has come about this week. And Governor Stitt makes it official, signing the grocery sales tax cut bill into law. We've talked in the past about this legislation, so I thought it would be a good time to let listeners know what they can expect from this tax cut. Ryan, when will we see a reduction in the grocery tax? You know, I think the bill does not have an effective date, which, uh, you know, generally means, you know, 90 days after session expires. I think we'll probably start to see this late summer, maybe early fall, go into an effect. Um, and, you know, so so Oklahoma's going to the grocery store right now, and, and if you're getting rung up for sales tax at the, at the cash register, don't get mad at the, <laughs> at the cashier. Uh, don't ask to talk to the manager. Uh, you know, there's, this isn't a Karen moment, you know, just, you know, w- you've got to wait. Uh, you know, it, it would be great if there had been an emergency clause on it, but there just wasn't uh, an emergency clause means that uh, a bill becomes effective immediately upon the governor's signature. So that's not the case. Um, it does not mean that local and county sales taxes on groceries go away, but it does mean that those sales taxes cannot be raised until 2025 mm-hmm. at the earliest. But I anticipate that if we saw counties and municipalities come in and try to take advantage of the reduction of the state grocery sales tax to increase their sales tax, uh, that the legislature would probably intervene and say, wait a second, that's not what we intended to do. Uh, Governor Stitt said this is the largest tax cut in state history, um, and, and it's one that attacks a regressive tax. And that is a tax that puts the largest share of its burden on low and middle income Oklahomans. Typically, when we talk about tax cuts in Oklahoma, we're talking about tax cuts that primarily benefit the wealthiest Oklahomans and, and the largest businesses in Oklahoma. Uh, so to see a Republican governor uh, signing a uh, tax cut that is a regressive tax cut surrounded by Republicans and Democrats is, is really a demonstration of, you know, what can happen when folks really work together on this stuff. And it took, you know, a year and a half to get there. I mean, we, uh, at least with this legislation, this conversation has been going on for even longer than that. Uh, but to get to this point right now, I think we're going to see real relief for Oklahomans out there. I know that my, my grandmother, who whenever she goes to the grocery store, she, you know, I talk to her and she's, uh, my nan's always telling me about how much money she's, you know, spending at the grocery store and how much more groceries are. This is a real relief for a lot of Oklahomans out there. Neva. Oh, absolutely. It's a relief. And I think even though, as you say, uh, Ryan, it won't be till late August or sometime in that time frame, the 90 days after session ends. But there is this uh, need for everyone to uh, kind of adjust and, and mm-hmm. make sure that, uh, that, that they've gotten all of that together in terms of uh, the computers and all of the things that have to be generated to be able to, uh, uh, to do this accurately. So uh, with that, I think what we will see is uh, uh, folks, as you say, getting relief right there uh, when they're at the checkout stand. Uh, the 4.5 uh, state sales tax will be on all food and all food ingredients, and that includes uh, uh, soft drinks and candy and bottled water. But it's interesting; there are some carve-outs um, when you when you look at it. Obviously, uh, tobacco products, uh, beer and alcohol, but also prepared foods. I mean, those things that uh, if they're made or heated on site, uh, rotisserie chicken or 
uh, pizza or whatever it may be, those things will not uh, fall under fall under this category. So there'll be some adjustments as people are going to the grocery store, but by and large, it's about you know, getting your groceries, which I think now, I think I saw the a- average estimate that Oklahomans are spending about $300 a week at the grocery store. So this will definitely be something that they feel initially and ongoing, and we'll see what happens in terms of any other conversations about further tax relief. I think it was interesting that uh, Pro Tem Treat made it pretty clear in his comment that we've done what we're going to do this session. And he said we did it early, and now we move on. So even though the governor and uh, Speaker McCall are still uh, advocating for more in terms of tax cuts and, and things that are still on the table uh, for discussion, it would appear that the Senate is uh, has finished this part of the equation, at least for this legislative session. And kudos to Governor Stitt and Speaker McCall, because both of them, if they had wanted to, uh, they had an, o- an opportunity to make this a bargaining chip for the remainder of session on larger tax cuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, Governor Stitt could have said, I'm not going to sign this unless you put the quarter percent income tax uh, uh, bill on my desk or income tax cut on my desk as well. Uh, Speaker McCall could have loaned, uh, uh, laid down the gauntlet in the House and said, we're not going to hear you know, Senate bills on X, Y, and Z unless you put the quarter percent income tax cut on the floor of the Senate and put it up for a vote. That didn't happen. Uh, and so you still, like you said, Neva, you still have this divide with the governor and the speaker want additional cuts. You've got the Senate pro temp and his leadership team saying no more tax cuts for this legislative session. Uh, but they all kind of came together and said, we're not going to, st- we're not going to stall this important tax cut. That's going to help a, a, a large number of Oklahomans just to try to get something else. So, you know, kudos to them for that. I will say, you know, the, the carve outs are kind of interesting. Um, and you know, how, how those came about, I'm not entirely sure how those carve outs came about, but you know, I, I do think, you know, the, the folks that I think this helps the most are uh, low middle income, uh, uh, older Oklahomans, elderly Oklahomans living on fixed incomes, and many of them rely on those prepared meals. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, being able to go to the grocery store and buy a rotisserie chicken and, and bring it home and then use the meat from that chicken on, on a number of dishes, you know, kind of throughout the week and, uh, and and really, really stretch that one food item, that's an important thing for them. Uh, it's not to mention that this isn't going to help them. They, they will certainly get relief in other areas on their grocery bill, but I, I would think that, you know, perhaps in the future, the legislature can come back and address that. Again, I, I'm not sure why those carve-outs were made in the first place. Well, that's not unusual. Colorado also has, it has no sales tax, but they do have a sales tax on any prepared items. I don't know. I think it because I mean, it's, of, it's because of how they prepare it because they're paying taxes on those items and then not paying them. So you ha- there have to, it has to be in this somewhere. I don't know. Yeah, I, and, and, you know, cigarettes, tax, uh, cigarettes and, and, and beer and stuff. That makes perfect sense. You <laughs> know, I thought it was interesting. When Raise they, the taxes on those things. <laughs> when they did the bill signing on Tuesday, the, here you are in the ceremonial blue room at the Capitol, and what I was struck by was it was truly a bipartisan mm-hmm, yeah. representation. I mean, you have seen lawmakers on both sides of the aisle, as you say, Ryan. I mean, this has been discussed and really been a legislative agenda item for the last five or six years at the Capitol. So this was the culmination of a lot of hard work by all parties in a in a manner that uh, came to what, at the end of it, was something that I think Oklahomans overwhelmingly had said they were supportive of. So it's a win. It's a win-win. E- even though some still argue, and and uh, 
certainly uh, appropriations uh, chair in the Senate, Roger Thompson, who was opposed to it. I mean, about the fact that you are uh, having $400 million, <laughs> you know, those dollars not in the uh, uh, kind of in the coffers to be able to be utilized, but they have returned dollars back to Oklahomans, and I think they will remember that going forward. On Bipartisan, there was a wonderful picture, and I think it was in the Oklahoman, of Cindy Munson and Governor Stitt just laughing <laughs> at that. Yeah. That's something you never see, so I, yeah. Yeah, yeah, we need to see more of that. That's right. Tulsa Mayor G.T. Bynum is leveling some harsh words at a city councilman. Bynum says District 5's Grant Miller is unfit for office. The remarks came less than a week after reporting showed the Oklahoma Board of Bar Examiners voted unanimously to deny Miller's entry into the State Bar Association. Neva, what's happening here? Well, I'm not the attorney, so I'll defer some of this to, to Ryan. But, you know, what I do know, and, and I think many people understand, is that when you pass the bar, there is still a process where you have this Oklahoma Board of Bar Examiners who go and look at uh, the fitness of, of that particular candidate to be able to practice law in the state of Oklahoma. They, they, they deal with subjects such as good moral character, um, the fitness not only to practice the law, but a due respect for the law. And so what apparently happened here is that uh, uh, you had the mayor, G.T. Bynum, in, in Tulsa, uh, on a radio program, basically talking about that, I think he said he'd served during his time in office uh, with 32 uh, city councilors, mm -hmm. and the only one uh, that he, you know, that he really had taken issue with is this one that is now in question, uh, Grant Miller, who who the uh, board has said is unfit, and this means that he can wait for 24 months, he can come back and and go before the board again for reconsideration, but. In the meantime, there is, I think, a process where he can appeal the decision, and, and I think the reports indicated that he plans to, to do that. But when you really start looking into the details of what is publicly now rolled out, and I think the mayor basically said, look, we, even though we, we were, there were individuals on the council that did uh, have conversations during this process, we didn't make it public. Uh, mm -hmm. they, the, he said this was a case where uh, the, the subject in question uh, made it public and his mm -hmm. attorney. And once that happened, then now these, these uh, uh, facts begin to kind of roll out, or at least the information that's been, that's been made public. And this decision actually was made back in, I think, mid-January. So, um, but some of it clearly was concerning to a lot of people. And, and the fact that, that um, much of it had to do with uh, the fact that he had made repeated and unsubstantiated allegations in public forums and, uh, and other places talking about uh, that uh, uh, city staff were actually uh, guilty of malfeasance or guilty of uh, uh, things related to cost increases at the Gilcrease Museum, talked about other things, orchestrating uh, uh, legal actions against the city and attempting to use city staff to do the research on the case. And the, and the list goes on and on. And so it's certainly troubling for anybody just reading just the surface report. Mm -hmm. You would you would pause and say, you know, what is this really, um, where's this going and how, and, and on the surface, how serious does it appear? So I'm sure there are other elements in, uh, in the uh, uh, legal side of that probably mm -hmm. that, uh, you know, that you can kind of lay out, Ryan, but that I think is the upshot, at least from the reports that I've read and heard. Ryan. Well, in that uh, that uh, character fitness test that you mentioned is uh, 
that's something that the Oklahoma Board of Bar Examiners looks at at the beginning of the application, before you take the bar exam, and they look at it after they take after you take the bar exam. I don't know how often they deny uh, bar exam people that have passed the bar exam. How often they deny them entry into the bar to be sworn into the bar. Um, but it does seem you know pretty rare. You don't hear about it very often. Um, but it does, because a lot of folks are disqualified before they take the bar, which. I mean, that's the way, you know, if you're going to, if you're going to find something out, you find it out before you go through the process of studying for the bar and then going through that process, because that's a nightmare, uh, to have to get through all of that and then to be denied. Um, but the, the instance here, I think a lot of this, the next layer of the story really goes to, uh, the counselor's attorney, uh, a guy named Ron Durbin. He's an attorney out of Tulsa. Uh, and Ron Durbin himself is facing a hundred plus page long, um, uh, disbarment application by the Oklahoma Bar Association himself. That Bar Association complaint against Ron Durbin was recently updated. And I'm, I'm going to read from, this is from Gina Hendricks, the general counsel of the Oklahoma Bar Association. At the end of this uh, most recent amended complaint against Ron Durbin, she said his misconduct and continued licensure poses an immediate threat and substantial and irreparable harm to the public. Um, and this is the guy that uh, Grant Miller has made as his mentor. Mm -hmm. uh, and so, you know, uh, Councilor Miller has been around um, uh, Ron Durbin in many instances. You know, you, got, you know, think Ron Durbin is this, this guy who's this, he's kind of made his name as a, a social media lawyer. Uh, and he was out at the Capitol last year. He's, you know, he went to the governor's office, accused the governor of uh, watching child pornography. Uh, he's accused a sitting state senator of having uh, an affair with uh, administrative officials within the executive branch. Um, he has called a judge in a courtroom a drunk, uh, and uh, yes, and uh, he's been uh, uh, cited with two misdemeanor offenses now, including assault uh, in in the Oakland, in the Tulsa County Courthouse. Um, and this is the guy that that Councilor Miller has kind of you know hitched his wagon to. And whenever you do that, uh, then you know, it kind of follows along that a lot of this stuff that you just mentioned, Neva, that, that he's been accused of doing kind of follows along in suit with his mentor. Mm -hmm. um, and one of the things that, uh, you know, that Councilor Miller said is um, they said, you know, the videos that uh, they presented into evidence, if you watch them, that he was standing there with Ron Durbin. He said, I was standing there. I said almost nothing at all. Should I have been there? No. Is it a dumb decision? Yes. Uh, and it was, and you know, he was right there with Ron Durbin when Robin Durbin sat in the, the lobby of the Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics and Dangerous Drugs, uh, and you're screaming in Mark Woodward, uh, the, the uh, PIO's face of OBNDD, screaming in his face, uh, threatening to sue him and ruin his career uh, for allegedly not following the Open Records Act. Um, so whenever you start your legal career off with someone like that, uh, I think that who himself is facing disbarment proceedings, mm. uh, it, it goes to show that, you know, you're going to, you're probably not going to start off on the right foot. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, as it, as all indications are on this, it was Grant Miller that kind of teed it up and made it public. Mm. And so once he did that, then he didn't leave it alone. And, and I think your point, Ryan, it, most of this process I think most applicants, most people uh, going through the process to become uh, able to be a practicing attorney in the state would not make a lot of this public. They would appeal it if they thought they had grounds. They would try to work through the process or they would come back 24 months later and do it again. But in this instance, I mean, it was an opportunity for this city councilor 
to take take everybody on one more time. I mean, the comments that he made after the radio interview where he called uh, Mayor Bynum, uh, you know, basically a, a weak, thin-skinned mayor and, and said, you know, things about, you know, why is he coming off his perch and, you know, attacking me or, you know, taking, taking this on and taking shots at people who are trying to uh, uh, get through the, the bar process. And again, it's this, he's the one initiate, appearing to initiate mm-hmm. it, and yet uh, he turns around and then takes swipes at uh, uh, other city councilors and the mayor. So this is, uh, and I think it's important to note that the mayor, he is uh, very close to his uh, uh, final months in office because he did not uh, mm-hmm. choose to run for re-election. And so there'll be a, an election in August, I believe it is. And so there will be more changing, uh, changing of the guard in terms of, who is uh, uh, running city government in Tulsa. But again, it's this type of story that makes people stop and pause and wonder what in the world. Mm. Well, and if you're an attorney, you have, you have an obligation. You're, you're an officer of the court and you, you have to, um, it, it may make sense that you want to go on Facebook Live and, and yell and scream and, and, and make accusations and call people names. And, uh, and, and that's kind of the world that we live in in politics these days. Uh, these days, but it's it's regrettable. It, it is very regrettable, and I think that the obligation that you have um, to the legal profession, uh, to the practice of law itself, uh, is uh, an obligation that follows you not just when you're in a courtroom, not just when you're filing legal br- uh, briefs before a court, um, not just when you're talking with a client, but in all matters of your life. You you need you need to have that kind of decorum and commitment to ethics and professional responsibility because that's what the public uh, needs and expects mm-hmm. if we're going to have confidence uh, in our system of law and the people that represent us in that. And I think it, and I think the one thing that I think our listeners take away is the fact that there is this process. I mean, oftentimes uh, when people go into the, a professional career, uh, they, they, others looking at it, uh, and certainly in this instance with attorneys, uh, they don't uh, always recognize that there is this uh, lengthy process and that it is taken seriously. Uh, those who are going to be uh, uh, officers of the court be able to uh, uh, be able to uh, function in a very serious role in our society. So I think um, I, I think as you're right, Ryan, it, it does obviously raise the question of how often does this take place. But what uh, it does appear is that every single time someone goes through this process, there is a clear and lengthy vetting, and they go back and look as this uh, seven-page findings that uh, were laid out in this instance were very specific and go back, you know, many, many years in some cases of things that uh, were brought to light that they feel falls falls under the categories that they outline what they're looking for. Ryan and Eva's comments do not necessarily reflect the views of KOSU, its staff, or management. And programs like this are made possible through support from KOSU members who are listeners like you. Consider a gift to KOSU in support of This Week in Oklahoma Politics at donate.kosu.org. Hey there, this is Jenny May Harms with KOSU, where we want to talk with you, not just at you. One way we connect with listeners just like you is through social media like Instagram. So follow us at KOSU Radio, where you'll get a behind-the-scenes look into KOSU reporting, station news, and even ticket giveaways. Just follow KOSU Radio on Instagram, and we'll see you there.